Hi guys, welcome back to Box Tablet. I'm Julie Subrin. Today, novelist Lily Brett talks about her close encounters with rock stars. Lily Brett didn't much care for rock and roll, but her first job was with a rock magazine. So, reluctantly, she hung out with Mick Jagger and Jimi Hendrix and The Who and Janis Joplin and just about any other great rock star you can think of. These were the 60s, before musicians had publicists and handlers and armies of assistants, so Brett could ask them just about anything she wanted. More often than not, that meant she'd ask the rock stars about their parents, or tell them about hers. Max and Rose, two Holocaust survivors who had given birth to their only child in a German DP camp. Out of those conversations came powerful journalism that helped cement Brett's reputation as one of her profession's brightest stars. Lily Brett is also a poet as well as an acclaimed novelist. Earlier this year, her latest work of fiction, Lola Bensky, was published in Australia and Germany. It's about a young woman, the daughter of Holocaust survivors, who becomes a rock journalist and, yes, has conversations you'd never expect with men you'd never think were capable of talking about much more than themselves. It's a stunning work, and it will be released in the United States this coming fall. On today's podcast, Brett talks about all of this with Tablet's very own Liel Leibowitz. Lily Brett, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thank you. Um, we're here to talk about Lola Bensky, who is a fictional character, but one really can't help but notice that the two of you have a lot in common. So tell us a little bit about Lola. Who is she? Lola is a 19-year-old rock journalist, and she irons her hair straight. She's overweight. She has two parents who each survived Nazi death camps. And she has remarkable parallels to me. Um, I have two parents who survived Auschwitz. And I was lucky enough to fall into a job as a journalist when I was very young, just barely 19, and uh, didn't know what I was going to do with myself. Let me ask you this, you know, at the risk of sounding rude, what took you so long to write this? You know, what needed to happen to get you to think and feel your way back into these days of the 60s and, and all these, you know, incredible men and women, the musicians who, who you'd met and wrote about? I think that there were many things. Firstly, I had a lot of other things to write about. Lola Bensky's my 16th book. And also, my parents really looked down on me when I was a rock journalist. You know, they, like all Jewish parents, wanted me to be a lawyer or a doctor, and I didn't. <laughs> my big teenage act of rebellion was I went to school for gifted children instead of sitting for the final year exams, which determined which university you went to. I went to watch um, Hitchcock's Psycho. <laughs> and I was really shocked when my number didn't appear in those who'd passed. So my grip on reality was rather tenuous. And um, there was a part of me that didn't want to look back at that time of my life. My father said to me that it's not a real job to make famous people who uh, haven't done any anything that's helped the world in any way. And I said, well, I'm not making them famous. They're already famous. And he said, you're making them more famous and so they never they never read anything I wrote and I think part of that sort of stuck to me in a way because I hardly ever talked about it. Sometimes in conversation if I would say something like someone would talk about Mick Jagger and I'd say, 
oh yeah, and I've been in his apartment, and this, all the entire table, would, the conversation would stop, as though I had said, I've just won the Nobel Prize for nuclear physics, and it's going to save the world. So, and I think there were other reasons. It was a time in my life, my years of being 18, 19, 20, that I think I didn't really want to look at. And I'm actually not sure why, and I should know, because I've spent half my income and three quarters of my life with analysts, so I should really <laughs> know what I'm doing. And I, do, you know, I, do, I should know the answer to a fairly simple question. So, so what was, was, was this is, sounds, may sound shallow, but was Lola Bensky then a sort of therapy in retrospect? Was, what did it feel like to, to go back to? No, I don't think writing is a therapy myself. It may be for other people, but I think you've got to know what you want to say before you can write. I don't think you find out who you are by writing, although it would be much cheaper than analysis. It certainly would. But I think that once I actually sat down to write, and I mean, I put all my, I write everything by hand first, and I put all my equipment around me, and I went out of town to Shelter Island. And once I put all my notes out and put my equipment around me and thought, I've got three months to see whether I can start this book, I didn't stop. I worked seven days a week for 11 months. I barely left the house. I, the only time I left the house was to see my father who lives in Manhattan, not far from me, and he's 96. And he had, for the three years I had talked about trying to write this book, like not, not I, was, I was not trying it, I was just talking about trying to write it. And he kept saying to me, do you think you've lost the knack? And it, really, he asked me far more than was necessary, did I think I'd lost the knack? And I was really irritated. And so finally, when I started writing and I went to visit him, he he didn't stop asking me. He just rephrased the question, do you think you've still got the same neck? <laughs> so once I started writing, I was so happy. I, I wrote, I started off writing about Jimi Hendrix. And I find it astonishing that if you make yourself very, very still and have no other distractions and do nothing else, memories that can appear to be long buried surface, and they're so so clear. So let me ask you to 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 be still for a moment and 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 go back to 1967. One of the things that I found most astonishing uh, about the book, and and also in, in conversations with you, is the realization that uh, you know neither you nor Lola actually care uh, for rock and roll. This is music that that you didn't really like. So 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 here's this question. Um, it's it's the mid '60s. You're in some club in Manhattan. This is a, this is one of the I think most wonderful scenes in the book, also. And you see one of the earliest performances ever given by the Doors. What did they sound like to you? Very loud. It was a very <laughs> small club, and I was very close to where they were singing, and I could not understand why other people were enraptured by it. Um, and talking about their brilliance. And um, Jim Morrison actually frightened me. He frightened me more when I spoke to him, but he had sort of a, a detachment in his eyes. There was something that I felt wasn't connecting. And it, the music just felt incredibly loud and not very melodic. Um, not that I'm an expert on melody at all. And And I think it wasn't that Lola didn't like the music. She was quite indifferent to it. So 
it actually was one of the things that helped Lola Bensky, the fact that she wasn't crazy about the the music. It wasn't that she disliked it, but she didn't like loud music at all. I mean, she, her house, her home life was quite chaotic emotionally, and she liked silence, and I like silence too. I, I don't listen to music, and I think it's something that I've really missed out on. I know I'm missing out on, on something because I don't listen to music. But um, I was just very intent on finding out who Jim Morrison was. That's That was what I was, and that's what differentiated Lola Bensky from a lot of other journalists. She had never been taught how to write and never been taught anything about being a journalist. So she didn't know there were things you could say and couldn't say, so she just treated it as meeting an interesting person. And you chat in the same way you would chat to someone. You tell them things about yourself and you ask them things about themselves. But my mother used to say to me when I was growing up, you will never, ever, ever know what people are capable of. And it frightened me. And I knew that she really, really did know. I mean, you can't survive Auschwitz and not know that. But that need to know who people really, really were haunted me from a very young age. I was always very intense. I asked very intense questions as though if I asked enough questions, <laughs> I might find out. So there is a sense that despite her, her you know, dispassion or disinterest in the music, uh, it's not a coincidence that, that Lola ended up with rock and roll. It, it seems, and I think it's, it's one of the book's most salient and, and, and brilliant features, that she is particularly attracted, coming from this background with these with these parents who who really uh, witnessed the most horrific, you know, horrors perpetu- you know, perpetrated by humans, sort of drunk with ideology and without inhibitions. That um, it, it wasn't too much of a strain to imagine that that sort of person with that sort of upbringing would understand rock and roll in in a very different and, in a sense, much more profound way, and and learn to connect with its, you know, orgiastic, uninhibited. Uh, messianic, wild uh, movements. So, so, do you see Lola Bensky just becoming any other kind of journalist, talking to any other kind of people, or do you think that there was something always about the scene about these men who, you know, gave all and then faded and burnt away? Um, well, I think I think that what they had in common was Lola Bensky's absolutely intuitive understanding of people who've struggled. And many of the people who died had huge struggles in their life before they achieved fame. Um, Jimi Hendrix had a very, very rough early childhood, really rough. Um, And I think that Lola felt she understood what he'd been through. He was an incredibly sensitive human being. I mean, when I watched him for the first time on stage. I was in about the second or third row. I was sitting very close to the stage. And I knew I had to go into his dressing room and interview him afterwards. And I was in a state of terror because I had never seen a man move like that on stage. I mean, nobody (laughs) moved like that. Now everybody's grinding their pelvis and sort of fucking their instruments in those days, nobody moved like he moved. I mean, he was the most—he made the most sexual move, and <laughs> and so I was the one of the few times in my life where I was quite frightened of going backstage. And I went backstage, and I found this impossibly polite, 
highly sensitive man who listened carefully and who asked me questions um, that seemed to bear almost no relationship to the person he was on stage. But they did. I mean, what he was on stage contained the passion in him. What did, what did he ask? What, what kind of questions? Well, for a start, he asked Lola Bensky twice, was she comfortable? And she was very uncomfortable because she was sitting on a high stool and she hated heights and she hated stools. And twice she tells him, yes, she's very, very comfortable, she says cheerfully. And because Lola's so big and got big thighs and she's wearing fishnet tights and she has waddings of Kleenex tissue Inside her thigh, the inside, the itch of her thighs underneath the fishnet and it's starting to shred. She sees shreds of it on the floor. And so she decides to sit very, very still and go on a diet. And after about half an hour, Jimi Hendrix said to her, you haven't moved at all. And she staggered because uh, most rock stars, you could actually have a nervous breakdown or start dancing the twist and they wouldn't notice. So when Lola herself asks Jimi Hendrix questions or asks questions of all the other rock stars she meets in the book, they're not the kind of questions that, that people usually ask. They're not questions about, oh, you know, what, what, what are you, who are you dating, what did you have for breakfast, that sort of thing. She asks incredibly perceptive questions, and, and the one I like the most is asking these rock stars, you know, how do you get along with your mother? <laughs> that was a question that... I, in my real life, asked everybody and I didn't realise I was doing it until, <laughs> you know, about a year after I finished working in rock journalism. I thought, oh my God, I've asked every single person how they get on with their mother because it was clearly on my mind. I loved my mother massively um, but life was very complicated in my house for many reasons but I loved her very, very much. And Cat Stevens gave me a 20-minute answer on how he got on with his mother. And even Mick Jagger's answer was fascinating. I'm sorry, what, what did Cat Stevens say? Well, he was just talking about he, – he was incredibly mature. He was a few months younger than I am, possibly even a year younger. Which would make him 18. Which would have made him 18. Yeah. So he was acutely smart and very reflective. And he, he explained at great length that he – Never used to get on with them, but he was more mature now and he explained the importance of getting on with them. And I found that fascinating. And also I think what happens when you talk about things that are intimate to both of you, there's a greater feeling of familiarity than there is between a rock star and a journalist usually. And I think the other thing that set Lola apart and set me apart was the fact that I was not leaping into bed with any of them and it was very, very clear to them that I was not one of the many girls because one of the very sad things about that era was that girls... And, and the world was populated by men, the rock world. I mean, the singers were men, the road managers were men, the managers were men, the PR people were men. Everybody was a man. I mean, Linda Eastman was one of the few, few women working in that area. And it used to be a relief to me to see another female. But there were girls everywhere and they were throwing themselves at these guys in the hotel rooms afterwards. You would see three or four of them going into a room squealing and giggling. 
and they didn't understand they were just disposable. You know, they were thrown out of the room as soon as they were used. And I found that incredibly sad. But Lola was there to do a job. She wanted to ask questions, which was also a fabulous job for her because she grew up in a house where there were so many questions you couldn't ask and so many questions that are just plain unanswerable and will never be able to be answered. And so having the freedom to just ask whatever she liked. You know, when you have two parents who have survived ghettos and death camps, it really becomes almost absurd idolising a rock star. You just have a different sense of the universe. So my interest was always in finding out who this person was. You know, Lola grows up with a household, you know, densely populated with the dead, with, with, with the sort of the relatives and the friends who did not survive. And, and she chooses or, or finds herself in this environment at a point in time in which the world of rock and roll is really busy being born. It's sort of she goes from having nothing but past to having nothing but futures. Is that something that motivates her? Well, I think that what Lola is acutely aware of is something else. That, that First of all, this looked like an era of great hope. It looked like an era of radical social change. It was an era of great social upheaval. But Lola thought when Lola arrived at the Monterey Pop Festival, she thought she was witnessing a revolution. She thought she knew the world could change overnight because it had for her mother and father in a very, very bad way. But she thought if it's possible for it to change overnight, it's possible for it to change overnight in a good way. And so this was love, peace, brotherhood. Everybody, every one of us was festooned with flowers and bells and people passing out fruit as well as an awful lot of drugs. And I think that there was that feeling that she was witnessing a revolution and she was so, so excited. Everyone was going to love each other. And then there was the other side of that revolution, which were the drugs. And Lola was surrounded by people who were struggling to live. It's a very, very hard struggle to live when you've lost every single person you've loved in the universe. And these people were hurtling towards their death. And I don't think Lola knew they were hurtling towards her death. But with certain people like Janis Joplin, uh, who I myself thought was one of the most intelligent, sensitive, thoughtful, wonderful people. I mean, I interviewed her several times and I sat in with the performers uh, in the Monterey Pop Festival. And I, even at that very young age, I had never seen anybody drink straight out of a bottle from their bag. She said she always kept a book and a bottle and I thought the book was a good idea, but I was very worried about the bottle. And she also was someone who had a huge struggle. There was just something so sweet and endearing about what did, her. What did she say when you asked her about her mother? Oh, that was a huge conversation. Like we both talked about having mothers who, you know, my mother, my mother was with her dead. My mother had four brothers, three sisters, a mother and father, aunts, uncles, cousins, nephews and nieces. Every single one of them were murdered. And my mother was 17 when she was first imprisoned. I don't know how you get through that and have any degree of normality. I'm sure I couldn't. You know, so 
my mother was sort of not there. She was with her dead. She loved me, but it was pretty hard to access her. And I think Janis Joplin had exactly the same problem in a different manifestation. Um, I mean, she talked about her mother calling her words that she had to look up in the dictionary because she'd never seen them before. <laughs> and and I remember telling her that my father, if I came home, I mean, my father who's still alive and, you know, 96 and who's a darling, darling man, if I used to come home after 10 p.m. at night, he would call me a prostitute. And I always wondered if in Polish prostitute didn't sound quite so bad so that he didn't understand how much he was hurting me. So we had a lot of mother stories to swap and she was just bursting with life um, and also opened herself up. I'd never seen anyone open themselves up so much on a stage. Now at some point does, does Lola or did you begin to see this whole enterprise unravel, this this whole... I was frightened that it would because you know, the pills that were being passed along. I mean, even I, who I'm not a drug taker, but I did have to explain to John Phillips because I interviewed um, John and Michelle and Mama Cass at, at their home, which was a spectacular home. If you've come from living in a very poor working-class area and that was as things got better, I started off living in one room with my parents and you see this remarkable house uh, with terraced gardens that are, are extraordinary. But he offered me a bowl of pills, you know, all different <laughs> colours. And all through Monterey I kept saying, oh, no, thank you, no, thank you, to things that were handed to me. I was so relieved when someone you know, handed some carrots around and I could say, oh, yes, please. But I had to explain to him that I couldn't take any because uh, my parents were already devastated that I was not a lawyer and that if I became a drug addict, that would kill them. But he didn't didn't take the point about the drug addict. He did take the point about that it might kill my parents, so he didn't offer them to me again. So I, I saw that aspect of it. I was worried by the alcohol, but I never, ever thought they would die. But I was frightened, frightened for Janice Joplin, and they didn't know they were going to die. They had no idea they were going to die. I mean, we were, or I wasn't, but everyone around me was expanding their consciousness. They were explaining to me, this is not going to hurt me. This is going to make me think more clearly. And I don't even drink alcohol because I don't like being out of control. So I was not at risk for taking the drugs. But, but you could but see the, you know, the best minds see, of your generation. Sort of. I could see it. And also what I could see was the fame. As the fame escalated, celebrity is very, very hard to deal with. Celebrity and wealth, when they come suddenly or maybe even when they come slowly, are incredibly hard to deal with. I mean, you're taking very good human beings and with nobody professional enough to guide them. And also, once you're very rich, everybody's on your payroll. So you don't get people who speak to you normally ever again. And I think that that combination makes it incredibly hard to moderate yourself because everything changes for you when you become a celebrity. You could just see it. And we, we've gotten worse, haven't we, as a culture in that respect. So one of the things I think that strikes one as, as, as one reads the book is that 
there probably could never be a Lolobensky today. You know, to to have that kind of access that leads you to Mick Jagger's apartment is no way. There's no way you could do it. Like now, you would get fifteen minutes with Angelina Jolie. And you would have to sign three documents swearing that whatever phrase you manage to get is not going to be used in regard to anything but that specific movie. Otherwise, this is what will happen to you. You know, it's 100 years in prison. <laughs> and there's no way. Nobody will ever, ever know what Angelina Jolie um, is like. And I'm not sure that that's really important, but I think what is important is to understand that we are all the same human being and it's a very good idea to admire somebody and admire their work, but it's not a good idea to idolise them and think they're different from you. You know, p- part of the part of what I've always written about is the danger of deciding that somebody else, because of the colour of their skin or their religious beliefs or their sexual orientation or even the music they play, is different from you because that's a very sort of... Sh- short little slide to deciding then they don't feel as much pain as you do or they don't um, they don't mind sleeping out in the cold because they're used to it and you know if you get a government in power that encourages and allows that sort of difference to turn into racism and hatred you've got a disaster on your hands Um, and so I think that knowing who people are helps you to understand that, okay, they may be living in five mansions, but they're dealing with the same issues that you're they dealing with. They still have with. a mother back home that... That's driving them nuts. Like, I don't know why it has to be the mother that's always driving them nuts. As a mother, I object to that. <laughs> <laughs> what, about, what about the father then? Did you ever ask anyone about their fathers? Well, sometimes we talked about parents. You know, sometimes we talked about parents. I mean, I also asked them a lot about religion. I... You know, Lola Binsky asked Mick Jagger, Jagger about the you know relationship between sex and violence, and asked him about um, religion. And Lola Binsky, we should say, who is who is strictly uh, forbidden from ever going to synagogue yes, by her parents as a child. Absolutely, um, Lola Binsky's parents, like my parents, came from Orthodox Jewish homes, and after the war, they each separately decided there was no God. And my mother would not let me go to synagogue, would not let... She just said I wanted to go to synagogue to meet boys as though, you know, meeting boys was akin to meeting a drug dealer or a serial killer. And I wasn't allowed to join. There were a couple of Jewish organisations. I didn't go to a Jewish school, but I went to school for gifted children. Of course, we have a large percentage of Jews in the school and they didn't know what to do with us in religious instruction, so we all just got to hang around... Um, and I, to this day, feel that I've I've lost out on something by not having any sort of religious upbringing and feeling a sense of almost disloyalty by going into a synagogue because my mother said over and over again, there is no God, there is no God. And, you know, while she's washing the dishes, she never said it at any particular moment, just, you know, cooking something, cleaning a saucepan, there is no God. She almost said it to herself. So I think that the notion of religion was on my brain a lot because I knew I was missing out on it. And my children, you know, my son said to me, the least you could have done was 
told us something about Judaism. I said, I had nothing. There was no something that I could tell you because he said, I had to learn everything by myself. Um, so I think that I asked an awful lot of people and Lola Bensky asked a lot of people about religion because she was fascinated and almost envious of those people who were religious, you know. And was was rock and roll their religion? Did they fashion it into a sort of belief system? Or? No, Jimi Hendrix said that he didn't believe in God, but if he did believe in God, he thought God was in all of us and his religion was his music he played to get inside the soul of people. And boy, did that resonate with Lola. She always wanted to get inside the soul of people. She wanted to know who they were. She was never interested in any superficial friendship. She had a very strong need to know. that. That's why she interviewed people at great length. Why is this book about Lola Bensky? Why isn't this a, a Lily Brett memoir? You know, I thought of writing this book as nonfiction, and then I thought I could draw the most powerful portraits I was capable of drawing of the rock stars that I was most interested in. And they were basically Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Brian Jones, Jim Morrison, Mama Cass. And I wanted to, I just wanted to really represent them as who they really were. And I found it I found it easier to do it, more effective to do it, to be Lola rather than Lily. That distancing provided some sort of... It wasn't a distancing. It was just a different form of writing. You know, I think that it enabled me... I didn't want to go back and read my interviews. I didn't want to... I was really glad I didn't because when I looked at the photographs that... the, the You know, there were photographs of me with a lot of rock stars... And when I looked at them and I looked at everything after I finished writing, they were good photographs, but they looked dead to me. My novel looked full of life and that's what I wanted. I I didn't want to regurgitate anything. I wanted to allow myself to be there and fiction was a really good way. It's not distancing at all because I'm not under any illusion that Lola Bensky isn't part of me. And so writing a novel... It just seemed much more satisfying. And I think it is. I think I've presented them in a way that I'm pleased with. Lily Brett, thank you so much for speaking with us. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Lily Brett is the author of Lola Bensky, which is due out in the fall. If you can't wait that long and you don't mind paying the shipping fees, you can purchase it from Penguin Books Australia. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm Leah Leibowitz. From all of us at Tablet, we wish you a very happy new year. Thanks for listening and hope you'll come back next week. <laughs>